Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? Good morning. Good to see you today. And uh, my name is Josh. Again, if you don't know me, one of the pastors here. Welcome to all of you joining us online, wherever you're at. Maybe, maybe you're in Milford or Syracuse or New Paris or Napanee or Warsaw or Leesburg or who knows where else. But we're really glad that you're with us today too. And uh, I want to tell you a story here about a guy uh, named Worth Worley. Actually, it's a story about a guy that he came in contact with that he tells uh, Worth Worley was a Baptist preacher in North Carolina. Uh, he was saved in 1958 and then ended up planting a church there, served as a pastor for a few years before heading to the mission field. He ended up in South Korea and Singapore and Russia and uh, until his homecoming with the Lord just a few years ago in 2017. But he tells this amazing story from his time in South Korea in the late 60s, mid 70s, somewhere in that ballpark. He writes this, he said, uh, one night while preaching at a halfway house in Taegu, South Korea, where Mrs. Worley and I were missionaries, a group of inmates, after hearing the word of God, came forward to receive Christ as their personal savior. We were happy to help them. After we had thoroughly led them through the word of God, we felt like they really understood the gospel. Well, uh, Colonel Kim Chang Hoop, was one of them that gladly received Jesus as a savior. And later that evening, we were having fellowship with them and I learned that the colonel who had just received Christ as his savior was a North Korean. And then I learned his story. It seems that he was a spy that had been caught attempting to come to the South in order to cut the president's head off, who at that time was Park Chung-hee. Uh, that guy was president of South Korea from 1961 until he was eventually assassinated in 1979. Uh, Colonel Kim Chang-hup, I'm not exactly sure, was the leader, though, of all the spies that had come to get him. And he had been in the South Korean prison for a number of years before this encounter. Uh, and that was the colonel's lucky day. He heard the wonderful story of Jesus Christ and was saved. And later, after he was released, he was baptized and was a very faithful member of our Tejan Bible Baptist Church that we planted there. Work was very scarce at that time, especially for an ex-communist spy, as you can imagine. So we hired him as the church janitor, where he served faithfully until I left for the South. That's a pretty crazy story, isn't it? A guy who's a spy for North Korea coming in with intentions, leading other spies to decapitate the president of South Korea. And instead of arresting that president, capturing him and, 
doing what he wanted to do. He himself was captured and then Jesus got a hold of him. Well, we're gonna read a story this morning from Acts chapter nine, a very similar one of a guy by the name of Saul who was on a mission for himself that he thought was a mission that was right when he was on his way to arrest Christians and bring them back and to ravage the church. But instead of arresting the Christians, God arrested him. And Jesus got a hold of his heart at just the right time. And so we're gonna look at that story today in Acts chapter nine. And before we do though, let's pray. And then we're gonna dive in to Acts chapter nine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And Jesus, thank you that you love us and you call us, you choose us, you save us not because of anything good in us, but all because of your goodness. So Holy Spirit, would you uh, show us in the example of Saul, uh, a a guy who was far from you, but whom uh, you weren't far from, who ran from you and uh, thought he was serving you, but whom you actually ran towards and, and changed and redeemed. And Lord, show us how you do the same thing in our lives and that no one is too far gone for you to do that for them today even. So Holy Spirit, guide uh, my words as I speak and teach your word and help us understand, help us leave changed. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, let's just review a little bit of where we've been because maybe you haven't been with us. We've been in the book of Acts for quite a while now. And over the last few chapters in Acts, Acts, by the way, is simply the story of how the early church uh, grew and carried on the mission that Jesus began. And it's Jesus continuing his mission through the early church. And so we were reading and the church was growing and in Acts chapter six, it had grown so much that they needed to appoint uh, extra help to help administrate the church and care for things. So seven guys were appointed. One of them was a guy named Stephen who ends up getting arrested by the religious leaders and uh, kind of put on trial. And then because of his faith and testimony in Christ, he ends up being murdered. And we read about that in Acts chapter seven and into chapter eight. And then in chapter eight, we read of one of the other guys of those seven, a guy by the name of Philip, where uh, God is using him to to carry the gospel, begin to carry the gospel to the, the ends of the earth. Because after Stephen died, there was a great persecution that erupted in Jerusalem and everybody fled, including Philip. And he ends up going north to Samaria and he ends up going to the south and reaches an Ethiopian eunuch who would reach Ethiopia. And now in chapter nine, we come to the story of another unlikely uh, person who's gonna bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. In fact, um, the one who's gonna uh, probably create the greatest spread, you could argue, of the gospel. And it's a guy by the name of Saul. You might know him by his Greek name, which is Paul. Paul and Saul, it's actually the same name. It's just, as you're reading Acts, when he's interacting with Uh, The Hebrew people, before he starts his ministry to the Gentiles, he's Saul. And then at that point, Luke starts using his Greek name, which is Paul. No real difference. It's just a matter of language. Just like your name might be a different, uh, sound a little different in another language, so did Saul's. I'm gonna do my best to refer to him as Saul today, though, just because that in the text he's Saul. But if I say Paul, you know who I'm talking about, right? Because I might. Well, essentially... Uh, Saul was a devout religious terrorist. Let's read about him. Saul, uh, 
who was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Now, right here, uh, but Saul still breathing threats, still breathing threats and murder. This wasn't anything new. In fact, uh, this all kind of started, we read about him back in Acts chapter seven and into chapter eight. In chapter seven, when Stephen was getting pelted with rocks and murdered, it says that they all laid their coats down at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then a couple of verses later, we read that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And then on that day, there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and everyone was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But the apostles stayed back in Jerusalem. Uh, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But look at Saul. He was ravaging the church. Look at how he was doing this. He was, he was entering into house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That doesn't sound like uh, he was gentle, does it? Barging into houses, dragging people off to prison. And now when we get to chapter nine, we read, but Saul, Saul he's, he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he goes to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, uh, in Acts is the only place where we read of Christianity being referred to as the way. Uh, Jesus, of course, says, I am the way, the truth, the life. So he's referring to followers of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem, arrest them and bring them back for trial. Remember, they had scattered from Jerusalem. Only Saul, in his zealousness and in his uh, just fierce anger, he wasn't content just for everybody to go away. He was gonna go hunt them down. And that's what he's doing here in chapter nine. So Saul is here in Jerusalem. Philip had gone to Samaria and back down and uh, it says at the same time though, Paul was still ravaging the church there. And he gets a letter from the high priest because he's, he's chasing everybody out. He, he, he's not content. He's gonna bring them back and make sure that they pay for following Christ. So Saul takes off for Damascus to the north here in Syria. And on his journey, he heads north and up around the Red Sea. And uh, he, he works his way to Damascus. And that's where we pick it up here in Acts chapter nine. What we're gonna see though, Saul, who was an incredibly vicious opponent of the gospel and of Christians, Again, we'd label him as an extremist or as a terrorist today, a religious terrorist. Everything he does that we read about is what we might read about somebody from ISIS or some other terrorist organization. That was Saul. And we might think we look at him, we see him chasing Christians down all the way even to Damascus and we think, man, guys like that, I wish God would just get rid of them. But the truth is, while we might think, oh, God could never reach them, God could never change them. You don't know the truth today? God can change anyone, anyone, anyone. Even an extremist like Saul. I wonder, uh, let's make it a little more personal. Are there some people who come to your mind in your life this morning? You know, people you've written off long ago. And you think, um, man, uh, I don't think they're ever gonna change. They're surely never gonna come to faith. 
in Christ. There's no, there is no way. And you've just kind of written him off. Well, uh, Saul would have been one of those guys. But today's a reminder that nobody has gone too far for God's reach. You know, maybe that person isn't somebody you're thinking of, but maybe it's you. And you think, I'm too far gone. I've done too many bad things. I've, I'm too broken. But the truth is, no one is too bad for God to change them. No one. No one is. I mean, Saul is a great example of that. We read here in Acts 3 how he was, he was ravaging the church. He was uh, breaking into people's homes, just entering in, barging in. He was dragging off men, dragging off women. You, you can imagine what that would have been like, putting him in prison. But here's a little spoiler. Because while Paul is this far gone and is this bad, look ahead with me at the text for this morning in verse, 19, verse 15 of chapter 9. The Lord says to Ananias, we're going to read this in a bit, uh, go to Saul for he's a chosen instrument of mine and he's going to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. Huh? The guy who's like uh, ripping people out of their homes and throwing them in prison, God's going to turn him into a pastor? I don't know about this. An evangelist? Come on. There's no way. But he is. He's gonna change Saul from an enemy to an asset, from an assassin to an ambassador. Because if anyone was too bad for the gospel, surely it was Saul. But, uh, and if not Saul, maybe you don't think of Saul. Maybe you think of a list like this that uh, Saul, then Paul, uh, later writes to the church in Corinth. He says, don't you know the unrighteous will never, they will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Maybe this is your list of people too far gone. You know, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, those who are greedy, drunkards, revelers, swindlers. They'll never inherit the kingdom of God. Clearly, they're way too bad, too far gone. But the truth is, we're all too far gone. Do you know that? Look what he writes in the next sentence. And such were some of you. That's who we are. We're far worse than we feared. And while our sin may vary in degree and, uh, and uh, even type, but the reality is the, the, the result of all of our sin is the same. We're enemies of God, deserving of his wrath. We're all far gone. But if you're looking at this text in your Bible, you might just circle this. But, but you were washed. You were sanctified. In other words, set apart. You were justified. You were declared righteous, is what that means. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. No, Paul doesn't say, but you cleaned up your act and then God loved you. Nope. But in Christ, you were washed. He washed you. He cleansed you. He made you new. He cleaned you up. Friend, no one is too bad for God's cleansing and for his attempt to change you and to save you or the person you're thinking about. 
we're all sinners, we're all messed up. Even Paul writes this later. He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Surely Paul thought often of the times that he had drugged people out or he had witnessed murder. Maybe he committed some himself. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, he says. Again, uh, our sin varies, but the penalty is the same. And not only is no one too bad for God to change them, including you, no one's too broken either. Because you might think, well, okay, Josh, but you don't know maybe what's been done to me. You don't know how messed up I am. You don't know the addiction, the things I've done to myself and the ways that I'm broken. No one's too broken. You might think so, you might feel that way. That's the lie of the enemy, that you're too bad, too broken for God to ever restore. And some of you, uh, you've faced some incredibly hard things in your life that's left you broken. Some of you have done some things that's left you incredibly broken. And the sad truth is that all of us are broken. All of us are bad. Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. He says, you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, following Satan, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like everyone else. Bad and broken. But God. Isn't that great? Those are like two of the greatest words in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, later he tells the Romans, even when we were God's enemies, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. Why do I camp out here? Because here's the deal. Uh, we might think of Paul as too far gone. We might think of somebody else as too far gone. We might think of ourselves as beyond God's grace. But the truth is his grace is for everyone. The truth is we are too far gone to be made right with him, except for him reaching out in his grace and love toward us. That's why it's called the gospel. That's why it's good news. You and I can't do it. Jesus did. In fact, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy and goodness. And he binds up our brokenness from the sin we've committed and the sin that's been committed against us. This is speaking of Jesus, the spirit of the Lord's upon me because the Lord's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He frees us. He restores us from our brokenness. And that's the good news of the gospel. God can change anyone. No one's too bad. No one's too broken. And he can do it at any time. Because maybe you think, okay, yeah, maybe God could do that, Josh. Maybe he could save anyone. 
but I think it's too late. <laughs> I think he could have done that. You know, if he had done it last week or five years ago, it's too late now, too late. Maybe I blew it. I didn't share that when I had the chance to. Uh, it's too late. But the truth is, God can save anyone. He can change anyone at any time, even up to the last second. In fact, that's what we're gonna see with Saul. It was at the most unlikely time that God saved him. Most unlikely, think about it. He's on his way, he gathered up documents, he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, to drag them off to prison, maybe to kill some of them on the right. I have, we have no idea. And he's on his way, he's nearing Damascus. He's almost there when it's all gonna go down. And check out what happens at the last second. As, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Just one thing to note here. Did you notice what Jesus said? Jesus didn't say, hey, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? What did he say? Why are you persecuting me? See, the church is described, God's people, as the body of Christ. He's the head. He's the senior pastor, we're the body. And so when we suffer, guess who else suffers? Jesus does. When we hurt, guess who hurts alongside us and with us? Jesus does. When you feel broken, when uh, you, you feel the effects of your sin, guess who else feels that? Jesus does in unity and in solidarity with you because he loves you and he's given his life for you. And he's not just gonna let you hurt, he's gonna work in your life through his spirit to, with a heart to restore you, do you see? Just like if, if you had a big cut in your arm, you probably wouldn't leave it unbandaged, would you? You'd bind it up. Well, Jesus comes to bind up the brokenhearted. And he says, Saul, why are you persecuting that, my church? Why are you persecuting me? And then he says, I'm, I'm Jesus. That's who I am, you're wondering. Well, it might seem like a really short conversation because then Jesus says, you know, get up, enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. The reality is what we have in scripture, John tells us there's so much more written than, could, than books could contain. And so a lot of times there's probably more going on in some of these conversations even than gets recorded for us. Well, thankfully in this one, Paul actually gives us, Saul, Paul, I told you I was gonna do it, gives us uh, his perspective on this account later in Acts chapter 26. Here's what he says. Verse 15, way later in Acts chapter 26, uh, Paul's like, and I said, uh, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. But he tells him a little more this, in this account from Paul. Uh, rise up, stand up on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant, as a witness to the things in which you've seen, and to things in which you've seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you 
delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes. And then here's part of what he he shared with them. So that they may turn from darkness to light. Paul was surrounded by light. He's turning, Jesus is sharing the gospel with him. And from the power of Satan to God so that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, saved in me. Jesus uh, shares the gospel with Saul here. Hey, Saul, you need to turn from your sin. You need to turn to me. You need to turn from darkness and from Satan. And you need to turn to God and to me and to light. And then your sins will be forgiven. That's the gospel. And, and that's what he, he shares with Saul here in Acts chapter nine. Uh, there's just more than what Luke records this first time through. But, but rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. Well, Saul wasn't traveling alone. There were men traveling with him. And they stood speechless because they heard the voice, but they saw no one. When, when Paul gives this account later as well, he says, uh, they all saw the flash of light and all of us fell to the ground. It wasn't just me. And they could hear a voice, but they couldn't make out what Jesus was saying to me. They just heard the noise. I'd like to meet some of these guys someday. Find out, did they come to faith? What was that like? What were you thinking? I hope they did. I hope we get to meet him one day. But then Saul got up from the ground and even though his eyes were opened, he couldn't see anything. He was blind as if there was just scales over his eyes, we read. So after he got up, they led him by the hand and they brought him into Damascus. Don't know how far that journey would have been yet into Damascus, but this wasn't like walking, you know, like the trails in Winona or something. This is like a rough desert road into Damascus. So it might not have been that easy of a journey, especially not being able to see. And he was there then for three days without sight. And he didn't eat and he didn't drink. We're gonna see this a little later, that, uh, but I'm gonna point it out now that, that Jesus chose Saul and he chose him at just the right time. At just the right time. Before he went and just wreaked havoc on the church in Damascus. Before, he really saved Saul from himself and from more heartache that he would have endeavored in, in Damascus. And what I just want to point out here is that God chooses. He can save anyone and change anyone at any time, but ultimately, he's the one who chooses who and when. He's the one who chooses. God chose Saul. And friend, if you've trusted Christ, God's chosen you. He picked you. This is known as uh, the doctrine of election. You okay for a little theology? The doctrine of election. Now, some people have a hard time with this, but here's what it teaches, and it's, it's in God's word. That God chose us uh, to be his. Uh, he, he, that God chose us, it forms the basis of the doctrine of election. It's defined as God's choice of an individual or a group for a specific purpose or a specific destiny. And the doctrine of election teaches that we're saved only because of God's grace and mercy. And as believers, we're not saved because of our own merit. We're not saved by our own merit. The doctrine of election focuses on God's will and his purpose 
not on ours. God doesn't save us because we deserve it, but because he graciously and freely gives salvation. Uh, We didn't influence his decision to save us. He saved us according to his plan so that no one can boast and no one can take credit for their salvation or take pride in how smart we were to choose God. He chose us. Now, um, this doctrine runs all through the Bible from God choosing Abraham and all of his descendants to be a special people to Saul here through the New Testament to us today. And Ephesians talks about it. Let's just look at that briefly. Ephesians, uh, Saul, now Paul writes, uh, he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. See, God's, God's election and his choosing of you and choosing of me happened before the world was even created. Do you know what that means? There was no chance for you or I to screw it up. And there was no chance for you or I to have ever earned it yet. Either one. See, some of the, some of the trouble oftentimes we have um, and can have with the doctrine of election and this idea that God chooses certain people is we might think um, that God chooses people like we choose people. That's really what it boils down to. Uh, we think, well, man, why, why did he choose me? Why not them? Did he choose them? And if not, why not? That doesn't seem fair. But a better question might be, why would God choose anyone at all? Why would he choose anyone at all? Because we're all bad, we're all messed up, we're all broken. We'll never fully plumb the depths of God's purpose in election, but Ephesians 1.4 tells us, you know, he, he chose us so that we would be holy and blameless before him. He did it before the foundations of the world. I mean, think about when you were a kid and you picked teams in PE or on a sports team, something like that, right? Who did you usually pick first? You wanted the kid on your team who was most capable, most athletic, most worthy to be on the team and help you win. And you had seen that evidenced by spending time with them in their life. In many ways, they earned your pick, you see? But when did God choose us? Before the foundation of the world, Paul writes. So it doesn't have anything to do with my performance. It doesn't have anything to do with your performance or lack thereof. It has everything to do with his goodness. Now, how do you get your mind around the fact that God chooses us, but yet we have a responsibility to choose to trust him? I don't know. But that's why God is God. And I'm little pea brain Josh. And it's a great grace and a great hope for me to know that it's on him and that he chose me. And then uh, he chose me then to walk with him and to live in a way that's holy and blameless before him. And since he chose me, I wanna do that. How about you? When your head spins at the mystery of election then, and God choosing Saul and God choosing you, let it also swell with the reality of God's grace. That's a better way to go in your mind. Instead of worrying, well, why did God do that? Just, why did he choose anybody? It's incredible, amazing grace. In fact, uh, the rest of this says, in love, he predestined us for adoption. 
you might think of it too like a parent choosing a child to adopt them. Maybe especially a parent choosing to adopt a child before it's even born. You don't know what they're gonna look like. You don't know what they're gonna be like. You don't know their personality yet, but you've chosen them. And whose choice was it? Yours. But you love them and have them as your own. That's how God chose us, as adoption to himself, as sons through Jesus Christ. And that's why he chose Saul here, according to the purpose of his will, for the, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's good news what Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I raise him up on the last day. So if you're thinking again, back there uh, earlier in the message, that somebody may be, or even yourself, too far gone, too broken, God can change anyone at any time. And we need to be praying that God would draw people like that to himself. And he does it, friends, by the power of the gospel. Paul will later write, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save. In Romans 1.16. So let's read uh, and just look at the power of the gospel in Saul's life here. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Likely Ananias was one who either fled from Jerusalem or maybe came to faith uh, because of the people who fled from Jerusalem. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, uh, I want you to get up and go to the street called Straight. Go to Straight Street. That's really what he's saying. There were, uh, the, Damascus is, do you know Damascus is the longest, oldest inhabited city in the world? And there was a time about 50 to 60 years uh, BC uh, that uh, it was uh, reconfigured on kind of a grid system. And there were two long streets that ran straight across it from east to west. One of them evidently called Straight Street. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Behold, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, um, Saul? I've heard of this guy. I don't know if you've heard of him, but let me, let me help you understand everything that Saul's been doing. Ananias tells him, he's like a... I've heard from many people about him, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. This is the first time in Acts believers are called saints, by the way. Uh, so those who are set apart. I've heard of all that evil. And, and, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind everyone who calls on your name. He's a little nervous. Would you be nervous? What if God calls you to go talk to that person you really don't want to talk to? Maybe you'd have a conversation like Ananias here. But look what Jesus says to him. He said, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine. I've picked him, Ananias, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then check this out. Um, for I will, uh, or sorry, this is, uh, yeah, for I will show him, excuse me, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Paul, by the way, would suffer. We read about his talking about being his suffering. He's like, I was stoned a few times. I was near death four or five times. Um, I was shipwrecked three times, whatever the number was. 
He tells all of it in uh, his letter to the Corinthians. He, he suffered for following Christ. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. That had to be like just kind of a soothing balm to Saul, didn't it? He has this vision of a guy named Ananias coming in. Maybe Ananias was on his list of people to look for when he got to Damascus and dragged back to Jerusalem. And Ananias just says, Brother Saul. It's family now. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, he sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul tells of this uh, later in Acts 22. Ananias, by the way, the only time he ever shows up in the Bible is right here. And then when Paul talks about him in Acts 22, God uses this nobody to, to really uh, work in the conversion of Paul's life and mind. And one Ananias, he says, a devout man according to the law, well spoken by all the Jews who lived there. He came to me and standing by me, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to see Jesus and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you'll be a witness for him to everyone of what you've seen and heard. And then look at verse 16. So what are you waiting for? Get up, get baptized and get to it. You know, we're doing baptisms in a few weeks on Easter. Have you been baptized yet as a follower of Jesus? Maybe Ananias, you'd hear his words. Hey, what's, what's the holdup? What are you waiting for? Get up, get baptized. Be obedient in that. And immediately, uh, we read back to verse chapter nine, immediately something like scales fell from Paul's eyes, Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. He rose up, he was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened. And uh, verse 19 tells us he was in Damascus then for a few days. As we wrap up, I just wanna point out something about the power of the gospel. One, it, it saves sinners. Those who've, who've wandered far from God, who are bad, who are broken. The gospel is the power to save. Those of you who trusted Christ, it saved you. You didn't do anything to earn God's favor. None of us in this room have. The only difference is that some of us have put our faith and our trust in Jesus and him alone to pay that for us and to save us by his goodness. The gospel saves sinners. God who's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. And while the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life. The gospel saves. But it doesn't just save sinners. The gospel's for all of life. It also changes saints. See, after you become a Christian, you're called a saint in God's eyes. Uh, some churches would teach you have to die to become a saint. The Bible doesn't. The Bible says as soon as you trust Christ, you're set apart, you're his, you're a saint. You can start signing your letters, saint so-and-so, if you're a follower of Jesus, because that's who you are. You're loved by him and set apart by him. And as you trust in the gospel, not just for your salvation, but for your sanctification, God uses it to change you 
to draw your heart further and further back to him. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. The gospel, friends, changes you and changes me. So keep preaching the gospel to yourself. You can't do enough. Quit striving and trying so hard. And trust Jesus, love him, walk with him. He gives you the grace to make it. It's not on you. It's not. So don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, renewing your mind that by testing you might discern what the will of God is, his good, acceptable, and perfect will. Friends, God can change anyone at any time by the power of the gospel, including you and me. Let me pray.